Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Open to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. And this is a very interesting chapter. Now, because the whole movement of the book somewhat changes in this chapter, as you're going to see in a few moments, and it discusses a very controversial issue. You know, the first eight chapters have focused on the Jews' miraculous return to the land after some 70 disastrous years of exile in Babylon. It was a captivity, as we know, from a human standpoint, that occurred because of King Nebuchadnezzar destroying this nation. But from a divine standpoint, we know because God holds the hands of kings in His very hand, this whole scenario was orchestrated by a sovereign God to punish His people, to discipline His people for their sin and for their apostasy. So that's what's really been going on behind this captivity. And so these first eight chapters focus primarily on the miraculous return as God uses these kings to allow them to return. Uh, all the events surrounding the rebuilding of this central temple that had been destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar so they could begin to again worship Yahweh. Now, in saying that, I want you to know that the Jews returning to the land was just not a return to the land. It was also their return to God. They're returning to God and there is still much to be learned and much to be worked through and central to that renewal of their faithfulness to Yahweh was that they would rebuild this magnificent temple that would stand above the whole city and be a focus point for the nation so that they would see that central to their life, central to their purpose, central to all meaning was the worship of Almighty God. Now with that said, however, when you come to chapter 9, you come to a major transition, a major shift in the storyline. You might look at verse 1, and you notice it begins this way, now when these things had been completed, these things meaning when the Jews had returned, these things meaning when the temple foundation had been laid, these things meaning after years of struggle, when the temple had finally been rebuilt, and as we saw last week in Dan's preaching, where Ezra was allowed to come back under King Artaxerxes and refurbish the temple with gold and silver and all the things that would make it this splendid palace of worship to God. When these things, all those things had been completed, which had been external, a focus on building, a focus on temple building, when these things had been completed, you come to chapter 9. And in chapter 9, the spotlight shifts from the external, meaning the temple and all the rebuilding, refurbishing that's been going on for eight chapters. Now the spotlight focuses or come, goes off the external and then focuses on people's lives. The people of the land, the Jewish returnees, and their lifestyle, and the choices that they've been making for some 80 years, and their hearts the hearts that they would bring into this great temple. Now the focus is there and will be to the end of the book. In other words, it goes from the external to the internal. 
And this occurs as Ezra now begins to teach the law and expound the interpretation of the law as he's now in Jerusalem to the people. Now with this dramatic shift of perspective from the external to the internal, we are introduced to a very interesting value. In fact, it's a value that in our day would not be considered a value at all, but a vice. And it's the value that I have come to call, as I've read through this chapter again and again, the value of intolerance. It's a word that kind of grates against us, doesn't it? In our modern day, this value called intolerance. Because if there's something that our world in the 20th century in America cannot tolerate, it's intolerance. That's the one thing we can't tolerate today. In fact, if virtues in modern life could be rated and ranked in America today, the one that would be our national champion, the one that we would sit before and salute, quickest of any, the chief of all virtues in America today is openness. It's the value we call openness. You know, over my lifetime, there have been a number of special books that I have read. You know, most of the books I read, I read and just toss. But there are a few that remain in my library, just a handful, two or three, that are some of what I consider the great books of our day, the classics, not the past classics, but modern classics that have profound wisdom about the day in which we live. And one of those books that I would recommend to you is the book by the late professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago, Alan Bloom, when he wrote the bestseller, The Closing of the American Mind. It's one that I've returned to again and again. He has a chapter there entitled, Our Virtue. And I want to read just a portion of that chapter to you. He says this, There is one thing that a professor can be absolutely certain of from almost every student entering the university. Because these students believe, or say they believe, that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, one can count on the student's horrid reaction. They will be uncomprehending. That anyone should regard this proposition that all truth is relative is not only self-evident, they believe, but it astonishes them as though you were calling into question 2 plus 2 equals 4. These are things for students today you don't think about. Openness and relativism that makes it the only plausible stance in the face of various claims to truth and various ways of lives and kinds of human beings is the great insight of our time. The true believer is the real danger in America today. The study of history and of culture teaches us that all the world was mad in the past. Men have always thought they were right. And in thinking they were right, it is this error that has led to wars and persecutions and slavery and racism and chauvinism. Now the point is not to correct these mistakes and really be right. Today, rather, it is not to think and not to think that you are right at all. Relativism means that you are open to all kinds of men, to all kinds of lifestyles, to all kinds of ideologies. There is no enemy other than the man who is not open to everything. 
And then he concludes this way. Yet the mind that has no prejudices, or I could say no convictions, is empty. You know, coming home to America, <clears throat> you come home to an empty land. Our current inability as a nation to define even the basics anymore. What a family is and what it is not. What life is and when it begins. What is wrong and what is right. What is a man and what is a woman. What is indecent and what is not. What are family values? Our inability, our impotency to be able to answer profoundly and clearly what those are is due to the fact that we're just open. And the minute one tries to define those things, this incredibly powerful virtue we call openness, which hates any and all definitions of truth, immediately moves in and quickly kills any effort to define right or wrong. In the name, before the altar of openness. And thus no one says anything. Because openness is the chief of all virtues and intolerance is the chief of all sin. Today we are a nation who's gagging on our openness and our tolerance because it's killing us. We're becoming a spineless people who have no shame because we have no real convictions on anything. There's no prejudices. Our minds remain empty, clear, but empty. We accept everything with indifference, nothing except our own personal security upsets us because our knees are bowed before the altar called openness. All of this has impacted, by the way, the next generation that we see growing up beneath us, and especially our Christian young people. I don't know if you've seen Josh McDowell's new book, Right and Wrong, but he documents through surveying church youth all over America some disturbing trends as our own children with the impact of the age slide into the culture of a valueless openness. For instance, let me just tell you some that interested me. Did you know that 60% of today's Christian young people in America agree with the statement, nothing can be known for certain except the things you experience? That's 62%. 45% agree with the statement, everything in life is negotiable. Everything. 57% do not believe with this statement that there is an objective standard of truth. 57%, not of pagans, of Christian young people, believe that there is no objective standard of truth in life. There is a place for tolerance. America is a great land that has a lot of tolerance that is, is in fact a virtue. But my point, as we'll look at Ezra 9 this morning is, is that we need to wake up to the value of intolerance too. There's a place for it as well.
For instance, would you want a surgeon operating on your heart who believed that a chainsaw and a scalpel were equal? He just opened it. It's all the same. Would you want to take your car to a mechanic who wanted to lubricate your engine with Vaseline instead of oil? Because, you know, he said, they're both slippery. Everything's equal. No, you want an intolerant surgeon when it comes to operating on your heart. You want an intolerant mechanic when it comes to fixing you in your car. Then why do we believe that any morality will do? That all cultures are the same? That all ideologies are equal? Have you walked through Eastern Europe? Have you lived in their housing? Have you been to South America? Have you been to the Far East? Are all cultures equal? Are all ideas the same? Are all religions the same way to God? See, that's a hard question, isn't it? And see, in our modernity, in our modernness, we shrink back from wanting to talk about that too strongly for fear of looking intolerant. And that's where we are today. In Ezra 9, you see an intolerant person. He's a reformer. He's not a person who's mindlessly intolerant. He's not a fanatic, but he understands truth, and he understands that not any lifestyle will do among these people who are coming back to rebuild themselves spiritually before God. I want to read the first two verses for you, and you can begin to get the sense of what I'm saying. Now, when these things had been completed, the princes, some of the leaders, that is, approached me, Ezra, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land. According to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians and the Amorites. I mean, this is multiculturalism at its best. That's <laughs> where we are. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race is intermingled with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. Now, if you remember Dan's message last week, you remember that Ezra had returned to the land and he had brought all this gold and silver to refurbish the temple, but more importantly was Ezra's present ministry of teaching the Word of God to these people, helping them understand how it really applied to their lives. You don't just build a temple and then live the way you want to live. That's what's called religion, and that's what Jesus preached more about than any other issue, and He hated it. And so Ezra's doing the same thing. He's preaching to call these people to be a holy people so they can worship in this holy temple. And we know from comparing Ezra 7-9 when he came back, which was the fifth month of the year, to Ezra 10-9 where he is right now, which is the ninth month, he's been teaching the Word of God for about four months, preaching it publicly, teaching. And you know, after preaching for about four months, people begin to hear the Word and look at themselves and hear the Word and look at themselves, and it begins to expose certain impurities. And chief among these impurities is this intermingling with the holy people, with the people of the land. Now, I want you to look at verse 1 again. You might even underline this. They had not separated themselves from the peoples of the land. Verse 2 says that practically that meant 
that they had taken some as wives and some women, foreign women, as wives for their sons. Now I want you to listen closely before we go further. What this means was not that they were intermingling with a different race. The issue here is not races intermarrying. In fact, if you look at the Scripture from a big picture perspective, some of the great biblical personalities in the Old Testament married foreign women. I mean, Moses, the lawgiver, chief among them, married a daughter of Midian. The whole book of Ruth is about a Gentile, Moabitess, Ruth, who comes along and marries Boaz. And remember her great statement, your God will be my God, etc., etc. So I want you to know the problem here is not about races intermarrying. The problem here is about beliefs intermarrying. Now, to help you with this, I want you to circle one phrase. It's very important you circle this in verse 1 where it says they've not separated themselves from the peoples of the land, circle the two words, according to. According to. See, it wasn't just the peoples of the land. It was that the peoples of the land lived, because a lot of these were not Egyptians and stuff, but they lived according to the abominations of the Egyptian practices and the Canaanite practices. These people lived these idolatrous lives, and they weren't about to give them up they were going to continue to live and influence others with those lifestyles. And here come the people of Israel and they intermarry with these belief systems because they're so open. <laughs> I just want to be open. They don't want to cause any hardship. It's not going to be a problem. We can worship our God and you can worship your God or maybe we can both worship our gods together. But do you understand who their gods were? When you begin to read about the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites, you begin to read about the multiplicity of their gods, many of them extremely violent, others of them extremely sensual. They practice open fertility cults. Many of them, including these, had temples that were built all around the sacred act of sexual intercourse and prostitution. They sacrificed their children by putting them in, them in the hands of Baal and heard them scream as Baal roasted them alive as they gave themselves to these pagan practices. They had child sacrifice. They practiced open immorality and they were violent and dehumanizing in their lifestyles. But for the sake of openness, the children of Israel intermarried with them according to their abominations. You know, it's, it, it, it presupposes something. And I want you to hear me say this. It presupposes that when they came back, these people built God an altar, a temple. And that was good. But they also built for themselves an open lifestyle. And that was bad. But you know what was worse still? You know what was the worst of all? Is they thought they could worship God and live an open lifestyle and flourish. See, there's a deep philosophical presupposition behind all this. That they could worship God and live this idolatrous lifestyle and they would flourish. It's like what you see at the debate and going along in Congress, that we can keep piling up billions of dollars of debt and our economy will flourish. And you say, there's something wrong somewhere in that thinking. And there is. And there was something wrong in this thinking. And Ezra knew better. He knew the Word of God. And he believed it, not superficially. He believed it with conviction. And he knew that this present formula of life was a formula for disaster 
and tragedy because he knew and believed God's Word. I want you to see what he was quoting to them. I want you to keep your finger here and turn back to Exodus. I mean, this would be one of the passages that probably Ezra was preaching. Exodus 34. Everybody look at that with me. It's good to read it together rather than me quote it for you. Exodus 34. And look at verse 10. It says, Then God said, Behold, I'm going to make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth nor among any of the nations, and all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it's a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. And by the way, He wanted to do that so that they could then go on and reach the world with Yahweh, influence them. But He wanted them to be a holy people. Then He says in verse 11, be sure to observe which I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite, you've heard that, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hevite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, lest it become a snare in your midst, but rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall not worship any other god. Remember the first commandment? For the Lord your God is a jealous God, <laughs> you might write down, intolerant. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they, and here's what will happen, and they play the harlot with their God and sacrifice to their God, some of their children, and someone invite you to eat at his sacrifice, and you take some of their daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. It was because Ezra really, listen, really believed this. He really believed this. <laughs> Come on, Ezra, you don't really believe that's going to happen. No, he really believed what God was saying. And that's why you see him have such a visceral, passionate reaction when he hears about them taking these women as their wives. Look at verses 3 and 4 back at Ezra now. He says, and when I heard about this matter, I tore my garments and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard. And I sat down appalled. The word means astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the, of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me. And I sat appalled from morning to evening. I was just sitting there. I couldn't believe it. And you know a faithful man sometimes... A godly man can't believe some of what's taking place in our country today. Just scratch your head. Can't believe we would tolerate it. And he doesn't tolerate this. And if you notice some of the things he does, tearing his robe, pulling out his hair, sitting down in silence. You know when people did that in Israel? They only did those three things together when somebody had died. Well, somebody had died the people's spiritual life had died. In this unholy openness, this union with these pagans, it was tantamount to suicide and eventually the death sentence would be rendered. And that's what he knows. He knows the clock is ticking away their spiritual life. Even though they think, hey, we're back, everybody's being blessed, everything's going okay, he could see it through God's eyes and he knew tragedy was on the horizon, and he was visibly shaken and viscerally 
moved when he knew that and he let his feelings be known publicly. I mean, he went out in all the public and just sat down astonished at what's going on here. He made what most consider a non-issue in his day a big issue. Now, it begs a question at this point. And the question is, can you think of one thing over the last six months where you have been so moved in your gut in watching our world that you let your feelings be known publicly about it? Or do you do what so many in the church do today, and that's just grit your teeth and bear it? I mean, has there been a place where you just got up and with your employees or employer or your friends out at dinner or whatever, or they're over, you know, at your house and something happens, and you just look at that and you understand that's a death sentence for our country. And it just moves you so much, you let it be known. You know, you know, one of the things that gets me is TV. And this fall, I'm going to, this coming fall, I'm going to ask you to join with me in a public stance against some of what's going on TV. It makes me so angry to be sitting there watching TV with my family and a 30-second soundbite comes on with people fornicating. And it doesn't move us. Can you feel that? Today, it seems, and I'm speaking of the church at large, that so many have taken marriage to be just a casual covenant. It's not a covenant for a lifetime, though they stand before me and others and pledge life and fidelity for an entire lifetime, Christians, but the Christian divorce rate is equal to the world's divorce rate today. Did you know that? And people who once pledged to honor God for a lifetime with their mate, I know it's difficult, I know it's hard, I know we get in trouble, but they walk away. But you know what's worse? They walk away without opposition. They walk away from their children and their wife. And do they get shamed by their church leaders? Do they get challenged by their church friends? No, usually just get comforted. Sorry that happened. Sorry for you. Know it's been tough. They get comforted in their sinfulness when there needs to be a godly remnant who, according to verse 4, trembles at the words of God, needs to stand before their friends and say, you're wrong. Even if it costs our friendship, you're wrong. I want you to know that that tolerant error, it looked like a little thing 20 years ago about divorce. That tolerant error multiplied by the years and multiplied by shallower and shallower reasons that people give for divorce, has cr it's, that's what's created. Our present atmosphere where commitment today for young people means very little. They run around in packs because they're scared of commitment. And when they get together, they live together and use one another, but there's no sense in formalizing it because that could hurt us. And I want out when it's convenient. It's where six out of ten children today will live with a single parent before they're 18 years old. It's where billions of dollars are spent every year to try to somehow patch up the psychological damage done to children through broken homes. And where marriages have been redefined more and more into my personal level of satisfaction rather than my personal commitment to marital responsibility. 
And why has that occurred? It's occurred, listen to me, it's occurred in the name of tolerance. It's occurred in the name of openness. And the guilty feel no shame because we're just all open here. And so we comfort when at some points, and I know there's others where there needs to be comfort, but at many of those points, there needs to be confrontation, not indifference. May I call on Alan Bloom once again at this point? He says this, and I quote, a very great narrowness is not incompatible with the health of an individual or a nation, whereas with great openness it is hard for a culture to avoid decomposition. If you stand for nothing, listen, you are nothing. You're empty. You're nothing. And that's what Ezra understands. And Ezra was convinced this was a formula for disaster. There needed to be a call to these people of repentance from the heart. They can't undo what they've done in some sense, but in other senses, they can undo what they've done. And we're going to see that struggle next week in chapter 10. In verse 5 and following, Ezra lets us see his heart. And he makes this prayer. He sits down. I mean, he doesn't at this point go confront, but he does pray and he prays publicly. And you see this intolerant reformer praying because he knows something about God that this open culture does not. Look at verse 5. He says, But at the evening offering I arose from my humiliation, even with my garments and my robe torn. And I fell on my knees and I stretched out my hands to the Lord my God and I said, Oh my God! I am ashamed! And I'm embarrassed to lift up my face to Thee, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our head and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Now, you say, but he's not guilty. Oh yes, he is. Sure he is. He's part of it. This individual stuff we hear all the time, don't, that doesn't cut it. We're part of one another. We exist as a corporate solid community. And when you let it go on, you are guilty by implication. That's what he's saying here. He says, I'm guilty too. And I'm embarrassed about this. You know what the word embarrassed means here in Hebrew? It means I'm blushing. It recalls for me, and if you can get there real quickly, you can read it with me, but it calls for me a statement in Jeremiah. Where Jeremiah is preaching, and he, Jeremiah 8, he says this, and I want you to listen if you can't get there real quick with me. Verse 12, he says, Were they not ashamed, he's speaking to the people of Israel, because of the abomination that they had done? No, they certainly were not ashamed. They did not know how to even blush. You know what's sad? What is sad is when I sit in my living room and I see what I see on TV and I can't even blush anymore. Did you know that's sad? What is sad is when I hear people talking and the vulgarity in which they talk and they don't even blush. What is sad is when I see openly displayed perversion and we can't even blush anymore. Were you not ashamed? Did it not move you viscerally? No. I live in an open culture. And that's what he's talking about here. To where we can't even blush. That's a low point. Look at verse 7. He goes on to say, Since the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt 
And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame, as it is this day. Now here's what I want you to write down next to verse 7. He does not say we're victims. He didn't say somebody was bigger and tougher than us and came in and they took advantage of us and, and gosh, you know, God, if you'd just done something, we wouldn't be in this mess. No, He looks at their mess and He says, you're not a victim. You're guilty. You are getting exactly what you deserve. And when are you going to wake up and understand that the reason your marriage is the way it is, and the reason your children are the way they are, and the reason your lifestyle is in the shape it's in, is not because you're a victim. It's because you're guilty. You deserve it. We deserve it, he says. Verse 8, But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant. I mean, even in light of that, even in light of our guilt, God has been gracious to us. And He's extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now our God, what shall we say? You've done it. We haven't done anything. You've done it all. You've provided it all. And you know what happens? He gave them just enough grace to hang themselves. See, because what they did, they came back, they finally escaped Babylon, they come back, and God's providing all this through kings. They hadn't changed their lifestyle a bit. But they've come back, and you know what they've done? Now that they're back in the land, they go, well, we can just keep doing what we've been doing. There's no sense of response towards God. It's exactly what happens in counseling when there's a troubled marriage and you come and you bring church support and help and people are counseling and you start cleaning up some of their debts and problems and stuff. And you know what they do? Then they turn on you. They turn on you and they continue to sin even more while using you to clean up their problems. And that's what these people are doing. And I want you to know Ezra knew that wasn't going to work. Look at what happens in verses 10 through 14 as he finishes his prayer. He says, We've forsaken thy commandments which thou hast commanded by thy servant, the prophet, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the land and their abominations which have filled it from end to end and with it their impurity. So now do not give your sons and daughters nor take the daughters to your sons and never seek their peace or their prosperity. In other words, be distinct and tolerant of those things that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance. Leave it healthy. Leave it truly prosperous to your sons forever. And yet he concludes, and this is the low point of the prayer, verses 13, 14. And yet after all that, after the preaching of the prophets, after the little bit of grace that's been extended to us for a brief time, after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great God, since thou our God has requ requited us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us an escape remnant as this, shall we again break thy commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Wouldst thou not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? With all that you've done for us, you'd be so right just to get rid of us. See, Ezra says we're in a death spiral. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing to the New Testament people who continue to presume upon the grace of God when he says... In verse 
26 and 27 of Hebrews 10, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. God's just not going to keep putting up with it. You know, we Christians in America need to hear that because I think that we sometimes don't know that we're presuming on the grace of God. Sometimes a message like this is just a wake-up call. Building churches and faithfully attending churches is one thing. But if our lifestyles are unholy while we attend these built churches, we commit the same intolerant compromise. Verse 8 could apply to America, by the way. <laughs> it says in verse 8, but now for a brief moment, grace has been extended to us. You know, America is only 219 years old. It takes on a different perspective when I was on the other side of the world standing in cultures that lasted for thousands of years. <laughs> this is just such a brief time. 219 years. And we think we can go on forever. We think our lifestyles are of no account. And we think our prosperity is of our doing. What foolishness. Because we'll just be a brief moment with a big period. Verse 14 could be written to us today. Would thou not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? Someone has said it is the weakness of modern spirituality that no longer regard, regards God's wrath as a real fear. I fear the wrath of God. I want you to know that. It's been one of the things at times that's kept me straight when everything else wanted to go against God. Because I know He'll get me. Not because He hates me. Because He's committed to me. So what is it that an intolerant reformer knows about an open, that an open culture does not? Would you write these words down? He knows the fear of the Lord. That's what he knows. <laughs> he knows the fear of God. That God takes sin seriously and He takes toleration of sin seriously. Deuteronomy 28, you might just put it there, we won't look at it, but Deuteronomy 28 is the list of blessings and cursings. And it's so interesting, he says, you know, if you'll just simply follow me and listen to me, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you the jewel of the earth. As God has made America the jewel of the earth. But he says, if you forsake me, and listen, when he says it, it's like God pointing a finger like a father who's not after his child, but he wants him to know this is serious stuff. If you forsake me, I'll curse you. And I'll curse your families, it says in Deuteronomy 28. And I will curse your children. And I will bring upon you confusion in the marketplace and confusion in your economy. And I will destroy you. I'm intolerant of that stuff. So what are the lessons we can learn from Ezra 9? I'm going to take a big picture perspective. I've given you a lot of personal ones, but let me give you three big picture perspectives. The first is this. <clears throat> the key to reviving a nation always starts with the family. This is kind of taking a little bit different slant, but there's some great truth here. Abraham Lincoln was the one who said, the strength of a nation lies in the homes of its people. And I'm sure when Ezra started preaching the Word, he saw that the people were compromising in more areas than just intermarrying with pagan women. There were probably a lot of areas he could have focused on but in choosing one to make a public spectacle of himself in, 
He chose the most strategic one, I believe. And that's family. John the Baptist was the same way. Malachi predicted when he came in his ministry that what he would do in preparing the way for a reforming Messiah, he would preach his word. But you know what he focused on? Family. The word that's given over and over there is when John preached, he called fathers back to their children and children back to their fathers. That was reformation. Family. And you know, as this church goes, we've got a lot of years to spend in reaching our community. The target for our church needs to be family. But you know where it needs to start? Here. We need to have clear convictions about what a family is. We need to have clear convictions about what a dad does and what a mom does and what permanency of marriage means and what it means if you try to just walk away from that frivolously. We need to be clear. And if we get clear, you know what God will do? He will bless us. And as He blesses us, He will move our borders out and influence and He will change other families, not for the bad, but for the good. And the sons and daughters growing up in those homes will turn to their parents and they will bless them rather than what they're doing today, which is kill them. Because you wouldn't love me and you had no time for me and you didn't spend any time with me and all you cared about was your career. That's what we can do. Secondly, the key to the family is passionate, visceral support for it and an intolerance to anything which would undermine it. Passionate support for it and an intolerance to anything that would undermine it. We need to teach our sons and daughters in this church the importance of marrying within the faith. They do a tremendous disservice to them and their spouses when they marry outside the faith. We should stand publicly against those who participate in frivolous divorce. We should stand against any redefining of the family. We should make it clear that good parenting means you've got to spend a lot of time with your kids and it's going to cause you to cut back on your career to do it. We should provide whatever support is necessary to help young people learn how to live together for a lifetime. And we should honor those who have lived by God's principles successfully in marriage before the church. We should honor them. They've done a good job. Then finally, the third thing is the key to rallying support for the family. The key to rallying support for the family. And the key to intolerance against anything that would threaten it is going to be the courageous leadership of a few people. I would hope that few equals Fellowship Bible Church. That's what I would hope few means. Because it only takes a few. It's always only taken a few to turn a whole community or nation around. And like I said, next week, we will see that Ezra's astonishment, his, his visceral response to this sin is going to turn the nation of Israel around in chapter 10. I hope this morning before you leave, you'll say this to yourself, God can use me too. God can use me. Don't rock along with the status quo. Don't be silent in your classroom when your teacher mocks things you know to be right. Stand up in your workplace because godly people are people of conviction. And from time to time, listen, those convictions should passionately erupt in a healthy, visceral intolerance. It should. 
towards anybody who would pervert the truth. I want to close with this one illustration. This week, my 13-year-old son, Garrett, came to me and told me a story about himself and two of his friends. They're in a small coaching group here in our youth group. And on their own, they started talking about the issue of abortion. And one of them brought a video and they looked at the video. And on their own, I want to keep emphasizing on their own, they decided that they could no longer be silent about that. These are just kids growing up, 13-year-old. You understand how fragile your self-esteem is. So what did they do? Well, they decided to go down to the corner of Henson and Rodney Parham, and they got some signs. And this week, they just simply stood there on the corner, and it said, let's face it, abortion kills. And they had people drive by, and some honked their horns and smiled. There were others who drove by and cursed them. There were still others that shouted obscenities and gave all kinds of obscene signs to them. But there they stood for an hour, him and his two little buddies. And he came home and he told me about it. And I sat there and listened. And then my gut got tight because I thought, you know, I've been proud of my son's grades. I've been proud sometimes of my son's achievements. But I've never been prouder than him than that day when he walked in and told me he stood up for the greatest crime against humanity. And that's the taking of innocent human life. My heart almost burst out of my chest. You know why? Because I didn't see him anymore as a 13-year-old nor his friends. I saw the making of real men. We need to wake up to the value of intolerance. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.